Truth Espresso, Episode 49. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso. With Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso, and I am going to take a little bit of a break before I finish up the last episodes of our series on economic topics is not that there aren't any economic ramifications regarding the topic we're about to address in this episode, but we're going to change gears a little bit and we're going to talk about a topic related to health care or perceived health care, um, particularly topics related to abortion. Now, I just looked at this article uh, published three weeks ago as of the recording of this episode. It is entitled, Colorado Clinics Perform More Abortions Due to COVID-19 Restrictions in Other States. And since we are still currently in the pandemic, it's difficult to get away from the topic of the coronavirus. But as we see the COVID-19 effects and the effects of responding to COVID-19 in various areas of the economy and in health care as people were afraid that hospital beds would become overwhelmed, that the health care system would become overwhelmed responding to the coronavirus, we're going to look at a different angle related to COVID-19 because some states were determining what is essential activity, business activity, or even healthcare activity in some states would differ in that. Now, Colorado, according to this article, has determined that abortion is an essential healthcare activity, and other states like Texas in order to keep people safe and healthy uh, from spreading the coronavirus, just like with some aspects of health care, they restricted abortions. And so people in Texas and other states have decided that since they figure they need abortions, they would get in the car and drive up to Colorado. And some abortion providers in Colorado have been happy about that, particularly in this article, a Vicki Coart, who is president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. And she said, quote, abortion was put on hold, referring to Texas. It was an effective ban on abortions in Texas. And so they seem to be fine with um, banning church gatherings, but not about abortions. That's a ban on abortion. It's like a pro-life conspiracy. And so then 
The article notes that about three-fifths of the explosions in new abortion cases in Colorado during the coronavirus pandemic have come from Texas because Texas has been more strict on it. So people are hopping in the car, flocking and driving up from Texas to Colorado to get abortions. And abortion providers, Planned Parenthood in Colorado is happy about this. And I remember seeing on the uh, the Guttmacher website that because of the coronavirus pandemic, they claim that abortion is always essential health care, always something to that effect. Now, I have a very special guest with me on this episode. I would say that this is the most special guest I've had so far because this guest is none other than my own very dear and sweet wife, Chelsea. And Chelsea is a medical professional who has dealt with uh, the issues, the political issues surrounding abortion policies. So Chelsea, welcome to Truth Espresso. Hello, thanks for having me. So uh, Chelsea, you as a medical professional would disagree with the CEO of Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains that this is not something we would want. And you don't believe that abortion is an essential medical activity. So why would you believe that? I mean, isn't it a medical procedure? Like, why would you disagree with that? Yes, I definitely disagree that abortion is an essential health care procedure. It's not essential because it is taking the life of a human being, in particular the baby. But not only that, it's also exploiting women and Planned Parenthood and NARAL. A lot of these larger organizations are really well versed in how to exploit women, saying that they need to have an abortion. They need to have this access, that it is a right for them to do this. But statistics show us that this is not true, that abortions actually have very long lasting effects on women emotionally, physically, mentally, and that this is not something that they should be seeking. And um, therefore, I don't think this is an essential practice that needs to go on, especially during the pandemic. So Chelsea, what you're saying is that there are lots of women that have um, unplanned or unwanted pregnancies and they're they they might be poor they might be stressed out about how much work goes into taking care of a baby and they feel that they might not be in the situation where they would be capable of taking care of a baby maybe they're you know a young teenager and maybe or maybe they even just started college but you know like they they haven't gotten their lives started they're not in a, a financial situation where they'd be able to take care of a baby so i mean why wouldn't abortion be something that would help them out i mean if they're desperate for their own sake their their mental health for being able to deal with competence in uh, financial situations like you're saying that abortion actually really exploits women it doesn't empower them like could you explain that sure and for those of you listening, if you hear little baby noises, we do have our five-month-old along here with us today. Um, and so I will be the first to tell you our fourth baby. Yes, being pregnant and raising 
children, um, just the pregnancy in and of itself is challenging for women, but that is also the hugest blessing for women too. And that's how God made us. I love the Mother's Day episode that you did recently about um, how God made women and that God designed women to love children and to cherish them. And abortion goes totally against how God made us. God did not make us to want to be so overwhelmed with the stresses of a pregnancy or childbearing, raising children to the point of killing our own children. That is totally contradictory. So I think that, yes, it exploits women in that this is going against how God designed us. Also, there's a lot of shaming that goes on, shaming women into thinking that you're not successful if you don't have the nine to five jobs like men do, you don't have a certain income like men do, and that is showing that women are inferior and men are superior. There's a lot of pressure put on women about that, but that does not mean we have to kill our children in the womb in that process. And something to kind of point out um, earlier when you were talking to Daniel about um, Colorado specifically and how there's that increased rate of abortions in Colorado. And interesting to note that Colorado was actually the first state to legalize abortion in 1967. So six years before Roe v. Wade was passed, Colorado said that abortion should be legal in all nine months of pregnancy. And Colorado is one of seven states that allows late-term abortions with the fewest restrictions. Like, there's no waiting period. Um, you don't have to have parental consent. Yeah. And we also have the leading late-term abortionist, Warren Hearn, who resides here in Boulder, Colorado. He actually wrote the book uh, to help other providers know how to perform different methods of late-term abortions. His book's called Abortion Practice. And in there, he even mentions how some of these types of abortion procedures give him a thrill. And we also have a billboard as you enter the state of Colorado that welcomes out-of-staters saying, Welcome to Colorado, where you can get a safe, legal abortion. Wow. So yes, Colorado is definitely on the map of promoting abortions all the way up until birth. Wow. So even before that landmark case of Roe versus Wade, uh, Colorado was kind of on the forefront of making abortions legal. And uh, I know I talked about abortion history um, back in the early episodes of Truth Espresso, I have uh, six episodes uh, responding to an article by John Irving, who is a novelist and screenwriter who writes about uh, abortion history in the fiction realm. And um, I covered some of the history, the colonial period, how abortion was treated as a policy in the colonial period, contrary to Mr. Irving's assertions that even early Puritan Christians, he thought, were more pro-choice or pro-abortion, where it, they don't seem to be as um, pro-abortion as he thought. And, <laughs> and I traced the history of abortion laws in some states and where uh, it was 
was Connecticut that actually had the first anti-abortion law as medicine was advancing, like in a way to protect women from uh, medical providers that would harm them with abortifacients. And then I talked about uh, Dr. Horatio Storer. I quoted uh, and summarized some of his book called uh, A Book for Every Woman, where he made the case that abortion was murder and that it was harmful to the mother both to their physical well-being such as their hormones being affected by having a pregnancy that's natural taken out of their body the baby and their emotional stability and so that the allowing abortions for the benefit of medical providers you know making money off of exploiting women as you said that he you know he made the case and it actually got um states like all the states in the union for a while to make abortion illegal and so you know the medical profession at least used to recognize that abortion does exploit women at least for decades until there were political movements such as uh, after the turn of the 19th century especially in european countries you had a political movement such as that of eugenics um, that would try to cultivate um, society to be more of like a, a superior race of people, like trying to get rid of disabilities um, by getting rid of disabled people, uh, preventing births, preventing even reproduction by people who had handicaps to try to prevent more handicapped people from living and existing in society. And so eugenics was a, a move to try to regulate births yeah, and to that point of eugenics, it's interesting how last year was kind of a big year for legislation um, trying to have fewer restrictions on the late-term abortions in particular. Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York in January of 2019 passed a law to ensure that women in New York would always have the fundamental right to control their own body. He also removed any criminal codes that would imprison or fine doctors um, from performing late-term abortions. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting how things have developed in our society, especially activists that try to basically change the definition of abortion or change the definition of what's considered abortion rights that it used to be even like earlier in the pregnancy. And now it's up until basically after birth and trying to give a time window for when a parent after birth can decide if the child is worth keeping or not and to be able to have the legal freedom to kill a child not only in the womb but also outside of the womb so i think this is kind of getting into the question that we need to start asking and answering you know we've been talking about abortion policy and abortion in history a little summary of that chelsea what exactly is abortion i mean is it just one thing is it just one procedure or there are different types of abortion like and how would that even affect how things are reported as abortion so let's just start like can you give an overview of just what is abortion and what are the general types of abortions sure 
So, yeah, there are different um, methods of abortion depending on at what stage in the pregnancy the woman is at. A lot of doctors don't even follow the guidelines of when you're supposed to perform the different abortion procedures that can affect how abortions and the rates are reported, also the complications that we see with abortions, um, and also a big push for um, abortion method using chemical means, um, taking medications. The most common form that was legalized by the FDA in 2000 is known as RU46, um, or also called the abortion pill, and this is the most common method of chemical abortion here now, and women basically have to take two different medications at two different times, and the FDA approved this method up until 10 weeks of pregnancy, but a lot of doctors will uh, allow it up to 12 weeks, some even up to 16 weeks. If you think about it, the further along you are in the pregnancy during this procedure, the more likely you're going to have complications and more serious complications. So basically with the abortion pill, um, the first medication is called mifeprestone, and that is used to block progesterone from getting to the placenta. Receptors in the placenta need progesterone for the baby to continue to grow and thrive. And the mifeprestone blocks those receptors, so progesterone is not able to get to the placenta. This causes imminent death of the baby for the most part. Once the baby is deceased, then um, about 48 to 72 hours later, the mom will take a second medication called misoprostol, also known as Cytotec. This causes contractions, and then the mother is able to expel the now dead baby. Recently, there has been um, some doctors that have done research on the potential of reversing this type of abortion procedure. Dr. DeGaldo and Davenport have been able to find a protocol using progesterone to reverse the effects of the mifeprostone, which is absolutely amazing. We have over 800 babies since the year 2011 that have been born as a result of reversing that abortion pill process. 300 of those have just been in the last couple of years. So we're seeing an increase in women recognizing that there's this option a lot of women, right after they take that first pill, regret that decision. They felt that they were pressured into making that decision. So as soon as they take that first pill, now they realize, oh my goodness, what have I done? And want to reverse it. Um, Heartbeat International has a crisis line for women to call in if they regret their abortion, if they need help. And once they call that hotline, then Heartbeat International hooks them up with a abortion pill reversal provider in their area so they can get treated right away. Time is of the essence with starting the progesterone protocol. So if you think about it, the way that the abortion pill reversal works is, remember, mifeprestone works by blocking progesterone from those receptor sites. So if we're giving women that want to reverse this process extra progesterone, then there's a lot more progesterone on board to kind of fight for that spot in the receptor site. And then we have follow-up ultrasounds we do and lab tests that we do to make sure that both mom and baby are healthy during this process and um, just kind of monitoring how that works. But that is an exciting avenue that we've been able to start 
here in Colorado, there are currently three providers that do the abortion pill reversal protocol. And thankfully, this year we are opening up a clinic that my husband and I, Daniel, were starting um, here in Castle Rock to offer that service for women as well. And so that's one of the huge types of abortion procedures that we see on the chemical side of it. There are the other side of abortion procedures that are the medical procedures, and those ones involve instrumentation to either dilate the cervix, they'll use laminaria or um, prostaglandins to kind of help soften the cervix, and they'll use a curtage, um, which is kind of a sharp-edged, hoop-looking instrument. <laughs> they'll insert that into the womb and scrape any of the pregnancy products in there. So that is the medical terminology. They call it products, products of conception. But what is really in there, we know, um, science knows that that is the baby that's in there. So they're using the sharp edge instrument and they're scraping the sides of the uterine lining to tear apart that baby, the placenta, the egg sac, everything that baby needs to survive. They tear it all apart and then they use a suction to extract, um, kind of like a vacuum, extract out all the baby parts. Now, one of the major complications of this procedure, this is called uh, the DNC dilation and curtage, is that if the baby parts are not extracted in whole, that one of the, even a small piece of tissue left in the mom can cause an infection, and that would be really serious for the mom's health, and also it increases her risk for bleeding or hemorrhaging. So those are the two major complications physically that you see with the DNC procedure. The DNC procedure is usually done in that first trimester. And then you have the DNE procedure, dilation and extraction. And that's where it's similar to the curtage, but this one, um, instead of using the curtage first, you actually just use the suction catheter to suck out the baby parts. And sometimes there's a sharp edge on the suction that they can mutilate the baby in the process to try and get all the parts out and sometimes the baby is too big and they aren't able to get all the parts out through that section um, so they'll have to go in and uh, manually sweep out the baby parts too and so you can see with this procedure the baby being bigger as well and there's a higher risk of bleeding and infection with these moms as well for the physical effects of it. And then the last procedure that you have is uh, a DNX, but that's like similar to the DNA, so we won't go into that one. It's just for another terminology of it. But one that I do want to touch on is the partial birth abortion, just because that is a huge topic. And recently, in 2019, Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia attempted to pass legislation to reduce any restrictions on late-term abortion and even allowing second trimester abortions to take place outside of hospital facilities. And his reason for trying to loosen the restrictions on late-term abortions is that if a mom unexpectedly goes into labor, she has a preterm delivery, oh, now she has the baby with all these physical needs. He wants her to be able to have the right to decide, oh, now this baby is going to have medical problems, probably tons of doctor's visits. This is going to be really stressful on the mom. She has 24 hours to decide with her doctor if she wants to keep the baby or not. They're going to be nice about this process 
and keep the baby comfortable during that 24 hours while the mom decides if the baby should live or not. And again, this is after the baby is actually delivered. So that's one extreme extent of the late-term abortions that we're seeing uh, currently. Also, uh, late-term abortions are done, they say, for the health of the mother or if the mom's life is at risk. There are very few times where the mom's life is at risk that you have to quickly deliver the baby. There is never a time where you have to deliver the baby and kill the baby or kill the baby and deliver the baby. If the mom's life is at risk, you deliver the baby, you support the baby, you support the mom. That baby is a human being. So back to um, different ways that they do the partial birth abortion, the most common way is actually injecting a medication into the baby's heart um, through ultrasound guidance and making the baby's heartbeat stop. And then they can um, induce the mom into labor and she'll deliver the dead baby. However, there are so many different ways that late-term abortion procedures can be done. And there's been a lot of news media covering this too, that a lot of times doctors will actually induce labor and not do anything to kill the baby until the baby's delivered. So that way they can harvest the baby's organs for research, for stem cells, for immunizations. There's so much things and unfortunately a huge profit that places are making on these baby's parts. And it's absolutely disgusting that these doctors are willing to deliver a baby fully living and then kill it outside so they can harvest the organs before the baby is dead. Certain organs have to be functioning while they're harvested. So just kind of a disturbing but truthful overview of some of the abortion procedures that we hear about and that we see Wow, Chelsea, that's so that's a lot of those are a lot of uh, different kind of facets, aspects or types of abortion. It seems like some complex medical procedures that require like um, surgical know-how and stuff. So like if this is really just health care, you or I might think it's like disturbing or disgusting, but maybe we just don't have the stomach for some, you know, surgical processes. If it's just, you know, like maybe if it's just healthcare, I mean, some people seem to think it's it's just healthcare. And, you know, maybe there are, as you mentioned, um, some possible complications, some risks involved. Um, maybe some women might be willing to take some possible health risks to prevent other things that might be even worse, like having to take care of a baby. So it seems like this issue of abortion, the different types of abortion, chemical abortions or surgical abortions, you know, whether earlier or late term, that there's more to it than just the risk of complications from a procedure. So, I mean, even if there were no possible complications, such as, um, you know, tissue from the fetus being left over in the womb and causing internal bleeding or possibly something more serious later on, like, you know, if, if, if a woman's willing to take that risk, like, why shouldn't she be able to? So there's more to abortion, whether later or earlier in the term, than some people would make it out to be. So what really is the fundamental issue? Like, we're talking about a human life inside the womb? Like, so 
when does life begin inside the womb and how do we know this? Yes, I think you hit it right on the head with that. Um, the issue is, what is the unborn? If we're talking about another piece of tissue or um, non-living substance inside the woman, then we wouldn't even be having these discussions and these debates. But we're not. We're talking about a human being, a person inside of the mom that just needs that place to thrive and to grow. Um, even a one-year-old or a two-year-old still needs their parents to help grow and to be cared for. So I think you're right that we need to look at the question, what is the unborn? There is so much documentation now with all of the advances in technology and uh, specifically in ultrasounds that we can show and demonstrate that life begins at conception. Planned Parenthood and some of the leading um, pro-abortion industries have been really good about manipulating and changing the terminology from life beginning at conception to life beginning at implantation. And their main reason behind doing that is that this gives them more ability to promote the morning after pill. The morning after pill or emergency contraception is a type of birth control method that doctors recommend if you've had unprotected sex, then you can go ahead and take this medication and that will help prevent the sperm and the egg coming together. And if the egg and sperm do come together, then this will actually discard what we consider, what science considers a new human life. Planned Parenthood says, no, this is not a new human life because it has not implanted into the uterus. So their definition of when life begins, what is the unborn, starts at that implantation process, which it can be five to eight days after actual conception. A really cool video, if you are interested in looking up on YouTube, um, there's a video showing what happens when the egg and the sperm unite, there's actually this quick flash of light that shows up around surrounding this new formed life. And it's so amazing to see, wow, at that very moment, there's this bright flash that shows life has just begun. It's like scientists are like, wow, this is so amazing. This shows life begins at conception. But the debate has kind of transitioned from what the unborn is, is a human being. Yes, every aspect shows and points. Doctors, even abortionists, even women for choice will say, yes, human life begins at conception. But now we're starting to see this trend of moving from that argument and that foundation to it doesn't matter. It is my body. It's my right to have this abortion. It doesn't matter if it's a human being. It doesn't matter if it's a person. I My rights trump the rights of that unborn. And I know, Daniel, you like to kind of talk about that transition, that evolution of the abortion debate that we've seen. So I'll probably let you talk about that more because you're more versed on that side of it. Yeah, because it's, it's very interesting as I, uh, Chelsea, as I went through uh, those episodes of Truth Espresso about abortion fiction and responding to uh, Mr. John Irving's article and looking at how abortion was treated in history based on the understanding of the science and the medicine at the time. And of course, 
you know, Mr. Irving tried to make the argument that during colonial times, abortion wasn't treated as horribly as a thing as uh, the pro-life movement today treats it with its arguments about uh, protecting life, the life of the unborn. And there might be a little bit of merit to that, but it's but as I made the point, it was not based on uh, some kind of religious belief that allegedly a woman had a right to abort until this uh, time that used to be called quickening when the mother felt the baby in the womb kick. And so then at that point, that was the only way with the science and the medicine at that time to know that there was an actual baby in the womb. Like, sure, you had morning sickness or, you know, your belly was growing because something was there, but you couldn't look into the womb to see exactly what was there. And even Christians throughout church history, although they were solidly pro-life, as I documented from the writings, but even then they didn't have the medical technology technology to be able to look into the womb like with the ultrasound that we have today to see when life begins and so the the policy of christianity has always been to protect life the best we know how and the best we're aware of when we see that there is life so unlike what mr irving was trying to present that because the colonialists recognized that life was there when a quickening event happened that didn't in any way mean that they believed that there is some right to get rid of the fetus until that point that was the only point of time that they could recognize that there was life in the womb and they knew they had to protect it, but they didn't believe that there was some right to abortion until that point. But as time went on past the colonial era and into the 19th century in the 1800s, as medical technology was evolving so that we could learn more about embryology and what was going on in the womb at the time, states started to pass some laws like uh, Connecticut was the first one. And even things were limited at that time, so they passed the first pro-life law that would forbid the practice of abortifacient medicines for the purpose uh, that it could affect the health of the mother. And so at that time, there was still like recognition of how things were affecting people. And so at first, you know, there might have been, you know, a time before that where uh, abortifacient was kind of a, a like an underground practice with midwives, but there wasn't an, a lot of legal basis to say, well, this causes this, but it was still not part of respectable society because I pointed out that things had to be sold with an awful lot of euphemisms to make it sound palatable. But enter the mid-1800s when technology was advancing enough that you had um, the evolving practices of obstetrics and gynecology, and there was a certain doctor named Horatio Storr that I mentioned earlier, and as he learned the science of the way things worked, he learned the science that would demonstrate that life does begin at conception, and it was kind of, that was something kind of new at the time. Now, there were people who did believe that, but they couldn't prove it until more recently at that time. Even Tertullian, back in the early church period, he 
proposed that life began at conception. There were other Christians who maybe followed the wise uh, philosophers and thought that maybe life began at 40 days or halfway through pregnancy. But even then, the consensus among the early church was you don't intentionally terminate a pregnancy even if we didn't know when life began because God was creating a human being. But Dr. Horatio Storr was studying the science and the medicine. He saw not only that life began at conception, that it was killing a child, but also that there were effects, physical and mental, on the mother for doing these abortion procedures or for women taking what at the time would have been more dangerous poisons that were meant to be abortifacients. And so he wanted to protect both the mother and the baby by educating society and even educating lawmakers in very in all the states to move to make this process, this procedure of abortion, whether through abortifacients or surgically removing the child, illegal because it was an act of murder. And so he no, he saw that the laws were not really keeping up with the science. And so he had a heart for the unborn and the woman. And he started the American Medical Association and the, Amer- the early and small Mer- American Medical Association wrote some articles and persuaded state governments with their findings that abortion should not be legal. Like, you know, if we have laws against murder, we have laws against harming people, then if the science shows that that's what abortion is, then because uh, the child in the womb at conception is a human being, then the law should reflect that. Murder is murder no matter who's murdered. And so Horatio Storer made the case for that. And unlike uh, John Irving in his article, he didn't seem to know what doctors were thinking. But somehow they got what they wanted in his view, which was allegedly to control reproductive rights of women. Of course, you know, that's revisionist history out of his own ignorance because his article or any of his other writings or his movie doesn't make the case or really examine exactly what abortion is. It's just reproductive rights. And as I said in my episode in response to Mr. Irving, if his idea of what the debate was all about were actually true, if it was only had to do with men in power wanting to control the reproductive rights of women, and we're not talking about killing human life, as the pro-life movement makes clear based on advances in science, that I would be with him. In fact, I would think his article was quite kind, actually, even though he was not very nice to the pro-lifers in his article, even though he said that he respected their views. If really the whole issue boiled down to what he was trying to make it out to be, I would probably be harsher than he was. But, you know, the fact is... Mr. Irving and pro-abortionists really don't seem to make the issue about what the pro-life movement is shouting from the rooftops. We're, we're talking about that it's killing a human life. And the pro-abortionists seem to sidestep that and just talk about like little details like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't feel pain up until 24 weeks 
something like that, or you know, just minutia like that. But they try to downplay what the the actual debate is really all about. And the pro life movement sure has some recent innovations, but these innovations are based on the discovery of science, what the ultrasound shows, what's going on, that life does begin at conception, that it is fully human, that DNA evidence shows that the little human being developing in the womb has all of its information independently to produce its own blood to produce its own self. It just needs provision. It just needs sustenance from the mother. And, you know, even outside the womb, uh, someone has to take care of a child because the child doesn't know how to take care of itself. And so the debate has been for a while, and laws reflected it from the mid to late 1800s all the way until the early 1900s when things started to slowly fade in the direction of allowing abortion legally, in fact, enforcing it legally, because philosophies had changed over time. It seems like now the the science proves more and more just what is inside the womb, but the philosophy has changed because the laws reflected the philosophy of protecting life and consistency. But then, as you had the eugenics movement in the early 20th century about the idea of some lives being worth more than others and some handicaps, disabilities, maybe even different ethnicities or so-called races, you know, had less worth or more worth than others. And so life didn't seem to be an objective thing across the board anymore. And so as science has demonstrated clearly what we know to be the taking of a human life, the debate has shifted from science more to philosophy. I wonder what Roe versus Wade would have been like at that time as there were still questions about what was in the womb and when life began in a scientifically confirmable way and the way Roe versus Wade seemed to use the trimester system to determine what the rights of the mother would be and that Roe versus Wade dictated that somehow the 14th Amendment guaranteed the right to privacy and somehow the right to privacy would then mean that a pregnant woman would have the right to private medical care and not be scrutinized by public policy. And so basically within the first trimester, the woman had absolute right to abortion. And then the second trimester, um, I forget exactly what the restrictions were. Then the third trimester, basically states could regulate abortions differently depending on how they perceive things might have to do with a woman's health or other things like states had a little more freedom to introduce some more restrictions on the third trimester, but that reasoning, which seemed like judicial activism from the justices in Roe versus Wade, did not seem to be based on any kind of absolute reasoning. It was more ignorance of when life actually began based on the science, even though 100 years before then, uh, medical professionals were arguing that life began at conception, but we didn't have the ultrasounds allowing you to see that until, you know, a few years later and technology for ultrasounds have evolved since then. But Roe versus Wade 
was argued based on some level of ignorance of what we could actually see in the womb. And so since time has gone by, since Roe versus Wade in 1973, we can see from the ultrasound a little baby with a heartbeat at five weeks. And we could see a little baby moving around even before it's big enough to kick and so that the mother could feel that. And we used to call that quickening. And so now we clearly see just how developed the baby is that life be, does begin at conception and you know a baby could feel pain earlier than was previously thought a baby has a heartbeat earlier than was previously thought a baby's moving around and has fingers and toes that we couldn't see before but even with all of that as people have basically lived culturally in light of the landmark case of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton in 1973, they kind of rely on the cultural access to abortions. And so basically, it seems like the idea is, well, we need this. It doesn't matter what you prove otherwise from the science. The arguments used to be from science like, well, it's just a clump of cells before, but that has changed now. And pro-abortionists, as you admitted, Chelsea, they, they now will even admit that life begins at conception. But as the philosophies have changed, like, as I mentioned, the philosophies of eugenics, the debate now becomes an argument of different tiers and types of rights. Like, do the rights of the woman trump the rights of the baby inside so it's not an ontological argument anymore it's an argument of do the rights of a woman with her mental or physical or financial stability yeah and we can't downplay any of that i mean i know that i'm not a woman so i can't speak to that with authority but basically it's just do the right to control her body, bodily autonomy, trump the rights of what is inside her body, what is inside her womb, even if it were fully human, just like she is, if it's fully alive, just like she is, even if it's even if it can feel tremendous pain from the act of abortion. Basically, the philosophy has changed to say that the right of a fully grown woman or man trumps the right of what is otherwise fully human but not fully grown or the location inside the womb that somehow this philosophical concept is the proof, it's all the proof you need to defend current abortion rights based on laws, or rather based on Supreme Court decisions that were actually ruled based on ignorance of the science. And so sometimes, you know, you have to wonder if they had the science, if they had the ultrasounds that they have today available would they have ruled the way they did at that time based on ignorance? But we can't dwell in the past. We can't dwell on these counterfactuals. We can only dwell on what we have as the battle today. And so, Chelsea, you described a lot of the science, the medicine, the medical facts surrounding what abortion is. But some abortion activists seem to want to sweep that aside. It doesn't matter as much. And the issue has just shifted now over to 
an assertion of rights. And so, but since this philosophy of one right trumping another is subject to debate because it really doesn't seem to be based on absolute truth, it's just opinions. Um, like, upon what absolute basis, upon what presupposition does someone assert my body, my choice, or whatever's in my body? I have the right to kill no matter what it is. Like, how is that an absolute argument? And it's, so it seems like the pro-abortion side seems to be content that their position is not based on absolute premises. And so basically, the, I don't know, it seems to me that they're content not really to win the debate, but rather to legislate away the debate. And so attack hate speech or just make it illegal to go against abortion. And so it's, a, it's like might makes right. And so we declare, based on our philosophy, that this right trumps this right. And we're forced as pro-lifers that we have to just acknowledge that or accept that because then the law takes precedent to enforce that philosophy and that becomes the underlying basis for the validity of these assumptions of philosophy. But of course, since these philosophies are not based in absolutes, the laws and the case rulings seem to keep changing their criteria. And it doesn't seem to be that it's supposed to be based on anything absolute. It's just, well, if we get the result that we want, if it advances our cause, we accept it, regardless if it's based on truth, regardless if the foundation upon which it is based constantly changes. But that is what we call progressivism anyway. But Chelsea, thank you so much for giving us your insights, giving us your research, and we're going to continue doing some more episodes on the topic of abortion. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and hopefully we can have some more discussions and make some various resources available for you if you're interested, and um, hope to join you again soon. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Truth Espresso. I hope that it was uh, informative and enlightening. And until next episode, God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 